Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Rich Serino, and welcome to today's uh, Think Tank call. This is the first time that we've uh, done this virtually uh, via Zoom, so bear with us if there's any issues that happen. Uh, today, I'm pleased to announce we have three fantastic uh, guests with the Think Tank. We have Femur Administrator Pete Gaynor. We have uh, New York City Emergency Management Commissioner Dean Criswell and the Director of Harvard's National Parentness Leadership Initiative, Lenny Marcus. Uh, so we're glad everybody could join us today and we look forward to everyone participating in this conversation. It's open to everyone. I encourage you to ask questions. Uh, there's two ways that you can ask questions. You can ask questions via uh, Zoom on the chat function or you can go to the Twitter on the hashtag IAEM Think Tank and ask questions there as well. Uh, as we start to go through this, uh, I wanna make sure that everybody uh, takes the opportunity to listen to what people have to say, offer your input, and by all means, ask questions. Uh, most of it is not to hear us talk or hear me talk specifically, but to hear what Pete, Deanne, and Lenny have to say. Uh, by, I have a few questions to start off with, but then we'll go there. But first, I just wanna turn it over to Femur Administrator Pete Gaynor uh, to offer a few words uh, to start us off. Thanks, Rich. Uh, it's good to uh, see you, even if it's uh, virtual and Lenny and uh, Deanne. So thank you for the time today. And uh, thanks for all the emergency managers across the country who have joined us. And uh, I look forward to a uh, open and uh, interesting dialogue. Uh, no questions off limits. Um, if I don't know the answer, I'll just ask Lenny or Deanne to answer. <laughs> Great. Thanks. That's what I always do. Uh, Deanne, you're next. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, very similar. Very excited to be here today. It's been uh, interesting and challenging last several months. Um, so I'm excited to share some of the things that we learned that we went through. I um, definitely agree with the open and frank conversation. There is a lot to share. Not that we'll be able to get through nearly um, a quarter of what we cover in, a, in an hour here, but there's definitely a lot of information to share and uh, looking forward to the discussion. Great. And Lenny, or Dr. Marcus, with formal. <laughs> Rich, thank you uh, for bringing us together, and, and Pete and Deanne for sharing your experience out in the field. You know, one of the things that we've learned in studying leaders through this COVID-19 response is the importance of imagination. Um, there was no way that we could categorize what COVID-19 would be when it first started. There are no, like, hurricane categories or tornado categories, and credit to both of you uh, that you brought your imagination uh, to understand with a very wide view, what we call meta-leadership, what's going on here, and then with a very wide view of what can be done about it. So we'll be interested to hear how you exercised your imagination and then how it manifests through this extraordinary response. So Rich, thank you for bringing us together. Thank you, and I wanna thank IAM and Harvard, co-sponsoring the Think Tank today. And um, Pete, what did you see, you know, I, I, it's going to be difficult, I'm sure, but what were some of the biggest challenges that you've come across in the last four months or so? Uh, I know you can narrow that down to just, you know. That's, two, that's, that's the first question, huh, Rich? <laughs> the whole, I figured I'd start with a softball. Yeah, that's, that's a good one. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's uh, not that I've been counting days, but I think it's been, uh, 131 days of, uh, of, of response. And, and, I, and I know uh, probably uh, in talking to you over the past couple months and Lenny and others, uh, I don't think any of us imagined um, a pandemic 
uh, of this scale, uh, not only in the United States, but across the, across the globe. Um, I don't think any of us imagined, um, you know, 56 states and territories in the District of Columbia under a national emergency all on one day. Uh, I don't think any of us imagined that uh, we would be uh, scouring the globe looking for PPE uh, everywhere, every nook and cranny uh, looking for PPE. Uh, I don't think any of us imagined that uh, we would almost run short of ventilators. Uh, and I could, I could go on and on, uh, but what I, I think, I think Lenny uh, talked about a little bit, but what I did imagine is that we would be successful. Uh, and we all know it's not over yet. Uh, I think uh, many of us were looking for a uh, July and August that were uh, a little uh, more tame than March and April and the, and the beginning of May, uh, but that's not how it is today. So uh, hot tempo is up. Uh, you know, what we're looking at in the Sun Belt is not really exactly what we saw in New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Detroit, Chicago. Uh, it's a little bit different. Uh, so th this, uh, you know, COVID-19 continues to evolve. Uh, we, we learn as we go. Uh, we're much smarter today than we were on uh, March 13th when the president declared uh, national uh, uh, emergency. Um, and, and we have a ways to go. And, 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 I'll, and I'll say this uh, to everyone, and I may have said it in a letter to emergency managers. Um, if, you, if you have not been hit by COVID-19, uh, yet, I, I would consider yourself fortunate, uh, but it's only a matter of time before it comes to your neighborhood. Uh, and so all the things that we've learned, and I know Deanne can, can, can run down the list uh, in New York and New Jersey uh, that had early outbreaks in uh, March and April, uh, we need to apply all of those lessons uh, across the country. We see an outbreak uh, in the Sun Belt. Uh, uh, in the Sun Belt. Um, it's a little bit different. Uh, but one thing we all have to do is mitigation. Uh, mitigation counts. Uh, it works. Uh, it is, it is um, uh, hard to do sometimes because it requires social distancing. And I know we're all tired of that. Uh, it requires us uh, to wash our hands, as simple as that sounds. It requires us not to gather in large groups, not to go out to bars. Uh, and it requires us, most importantly, to wear a mask. Uh, and if there's one thing that I would leave everyone today, even though... Uh, COVID-19 may not be in your community today, and you may not think you need to wear a mask, I would encourage all of you uh, to encourage your elected leaders uh, and community leaders uh, to, to encourage mask wearing wherever you can, uh, because it does make a difference. We see it in the data. Um, you know, as soon as a community puts a mask on, uh, it can, it, you know, the, 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 uh, the cases uh, and the hospitalizations and the positivity rates uh, continue to go down. So, uh, there's a lot to learn. Uh, there's a lot uh, that we that we saw over the, the past 131 days. We'll continue to learn, uh, but by no means are we out of the woods yet. Thanks, Pete. And before I go to Deanne, just one quick question. You mentioned that it was that what's happening in the Sun Belt is different than New York and New Jersey and New England uh, and some other places than what's happening in the Sun Belt. What, what's different? Yeah, I think what's different is uh, when you looked at, uh, and I'll just, I'm going to use uh, uh, New York and New Jersey. Uh, you know, that outbreak was confined, for the most part, uh, to a certain, uh, certain counties, uh, you know, Metro, uh, Metro New York and New Jersey. Uh, now what we see is that uh, 
the virus is seeded in almost every community. So we just came from the Gulf Coast, Louisiana, on a trip, Louisiana, uh, Mississippi, and Alabama. It's just not in uh, the metro parts of those states. It, it is in most every county, and that's the difference. And again, back to wearing a mask, although you may not have a major outbreak in your county, it's in your county, and you need to wear a mask to prevent further, further spread. So that's really the difference. Um, uh, and, and, there's, and I'm sure there's different reasons how we got there, but that's how I see uh, uh, the past response, uh, uh, March, April, early May, and, and then again today. Great, thanks. And Dean, in New York City was the epicenter and the first place that this happened. And um, a lot of your lessons learned, I'm sure, are being shared. Um, but what, what were some of your biggest challenges over the last few months? Yeah, there's many challenges and uh, I'll cover just a couple. And I think one of the challenges that uh, we faced initially and as this was first starting and Pete touched on it a little bit, which is probably still a challenge, but probably in a different sense. And that's just the resource management itself and trying to find enough PPE and ventilators and supplies that we're going to be able to support the increasing need that we had. Um, just from a stat standpoint, we had, we processed over 2,100 resource requests for 7,500 unique items and 2.2 million items were spread throughout the city throughout this. So that includes PPE, ventilators, uh, generators, you name it. Um, it, was a, it was an incredible undertaking by our logistics team. And I think the problem initially and the challenge initially was keeping up with the demand and adjudicating that demand. And so when we had a shortage of N95s, who should get those, right? Should it be just the folks that are serving at the front line of the hospitals? Should it be our first responders, our police officers and our firefighters, the nursing homes? We just didn't have enough to go around. And so how do you make those decisions and so we had started with this poll model where everybody would submit their requests in to get resources. And we quickly realized that we weren't gonna be able to keep up with that. And so in order to appropriately adjudicate, we moved to a push model very quickly um, and had a set um, amount that we would push out to the hospitals, to the nursing homes, to the first responders um, on a twice weekly basis. They did have the ability to reach back if they had an emergency need, but the push model, and if I were to do it again, I would move to that model much quicker because then you're able to really manage the inventory against what you have and what you think is coming in. But that was the other challenge is we were making plans against the resources that we thought were coming in and they weren't coming in. So we would think we were getting a supply of 10 million surgical masks on one day. Um, and two days before they'd call us and say, no, we're only gonna give you two. And then the day of they'd say, no, we decided to send them somewhere else and we would get none. And this went, this continues even today, right? I mean, it's just, it was a really hard um, lesson of trying to figure out who was the vendor that you could trust, who was the vendor that was going to give you what you needed. And we had very few of the offers that came in that actually turned out to be legit offers. In fact, we had so many people um, calling and offering that they could get us PPE. Mostly PPE from China is what they always offered. And uh, we actually developed the gag team, which we called the got a guy team. I can't tell you how many people called and said, hey, Deanne, I got a guy. And thousands of offers. And I would say 
less than 1% actually turned out to be legit offers, but you didn't know which one was going to. And so we put in place a process to help vet with a series of questions that they would go in online. And if they could get to the end, then we would actually give them a call. But it took up so much time that we had to put a whole team together just to try to vet the various offers that were out there. So again, the resource management, now we're building a stockpile for 90 days. We've got the warehousing space for it. We won't have the similar need as we move into a potential wave two, but it was really challenging in the beginning because we just didn't know where we were going to get stuff. And to, to Pete's point, we were literally were like, we don't think we're going to have enough ventilators to get through tomorrow. And we were looking at our PPE supply on a 24-hour basis. Do you have enough masks to get through tomorrow? Do you have enough ventilators to get through tomorrow? We did that for about seven to 10 days before we started to get some replenishment in some of those supplies. And so that was a huge challenge and really stressful in the very beginning. I think the other thing, and I have a number of things that I can talk about, but the other one that I really wanted to talk about too was the fatality management side for us. The fatality management was just, I mean, it, it exceeded, I think, what we had expected in the number of fatalities. Again, just for numbers, um, we had, where's the numbers over here? Um, we had over 135 body collection points, BCPs, distributed out to our 56 hospitals. So across all of our hospitals, obviously many of our hospitals had more than one. Um, we had a total, right now we're at about 18,000, close to 19,000 confirmed deaths in New York as a result of COVID. But I want to add to that is we've had just shy of 18,000 during this time frame of non-COVID deaths. So we're talking about 35,000 deaths during the first death of COVID to today that we've had to manage. And so how do you, how do you manage that amount of fatalities? The other thing that we weren't expecting was the number of non-healthcare facility deaths. And so where New York City on a typical day will see 25 to 30 non-healthcare facility deaths, for about a week to two weeks, we were well over 200 a day. And at our peak for several days, we we're at 250 non-healthcare facility deaths. So people that were dying in their homes. And so that was a problem that we hadn't anticipated. So we had to put together strike teams in order to be able to facilitate that. The other problem that we saw too is as we were getting more and more fatalities within the hospitals, the hospitals, and rightly so, were really directing all of their resources to the living. And so they limited the number of resources that were available to really manage the fatality management side. And while we had the refrigerated vehicles for them to use, uh, the processing and the dealing with the paperwork, you know, didn't always get done as timely as we would have liked because we were dealing with the living. And so when it came time to try to um, transition and move over into our uh, disaster portable morgue units, we had a lot of uh, work to do. And so we ended up creating these strike teams that consisted both of our National Guard members, um, our city workers, um, the emergency management staff to go from hospital to hospital to help them work through the details of processing the decedents that were in the body collection point so we could move them onto the disaster morgue so we could ultimately process them. Uh, with that, then we also saw a huge backlog within the funeral industry and the funeral homes just were not able to keep up with the demand. And I'm sure everybody saw some of the articles that were out there. And so we had to, again, quickly put in measures that we could support our funeral home industry and help them uh, meet the demands that they were seeing so people could have 
a respectful funeral or final arrangements for their loved ones. And so where we're at today with the fatality management, I mean, it was, it was quite an undertaking. Um, we had conversations on whether we would do temporary interment or long-term storage. Um, and it turns out that we, we, and we did a combination of both, but we really put in place a long-term storage facility so we could facilitate the processing um, of the remains for family members while the funeral home and the funeral industry was getting back up to speed. Yeah, just a couple of small issues, but in how they were handled, everything from the supplies to the unbelievably number of uh, people that had died in New York City and dealing with that. Uh, so Lenny, same question to you, but a little different take. Um, some of the challenges that you saw globally around leadership over the past few months, and then we have a lot of questions in chat that we'll get to in a, in a minute. Thanks, Rich, and, and thanks, Deanne and, and, and Pete. You know, it's interesting uh, listening to both of you. Um, because on one hand, there is that question of imagination, and certainly, Pete, um, you had to engage a lot of imagination as you were dealing with some of the challenges that walked into your uh, responsibility set. And Deanne, it would, it would be hard to imagine um, that you would have that kind of fatality rate, that you would have that kind of uh, overwhelming need uh, within your system. So what we found is that the best of leaders were able to wrap their minds around, this is really happening. We really have to cope with this. We can't walk away from it. But the other thing that was fascinating to watch as you were leading through this event is you were also dealing with a lot of denial. So the flip side of that imagination, which was so vital to what you were doing as you were leading, was there was a lot of denial. And Pete, in some ways, you spoke to that denial by saying, there are people out there that still aren't willing to wear a mask. There are political leaders that still aren't at willing to ask their constituents in their states and their cities to wear a mask. Um, when you look at pictures of bars, there are people who are not willing to social distance. And so the flip side of the imagination that you had to lead, and again, if we go back to February, mid-February, who could have imagined that we would be in this country in the same state as Wuhan, China? We saw those people stuck in their homes, couldn't go out, and it's hard to imagine that that would happen here in the United States. And then, of course, a month later, here we are. And so there has been this problem of denial. And, you know, I wonder your thoughts about leading through that process of denial. I mean, how do you get people to recognize there is a real problem here? You have to stop what you're doing and focus all of your attention on solving this problem in the context of the fact, no, that couldn't be happening right now. So from a leadership position, how did you balance this need to imagine this is how bad things are with the denial that you are getting from the people with whom you're interacting and your need to convince them, no, this is really a problem that has to be addressed. Uh, so, Lenny, you're, you're asking me, right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> of course. Uh, so, uh, I, I think one of the, um, uh, one of the more positive uh, Parts of uh, of what uh, we we've, we've lived through is uh, I got to be part of the uh, White House Coronavirus Task Force from not the very beginning but pretty close to it. Uh, you know the, the, the you know March uh, uh, March 18th uh, became full member of that and had access to uh, the nation's 
greatest minds, right? So from uh, Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci and Redfield and Dr. Hahn and Jawar and the, and the list goes on, uh, Francis Collins from NIH, all those uh, team members and many others, those are just probably the ones that most people recognize uh, that uh, you know, we were getting uh, what I believe was the very best data um, uh, in, in uh, the right amount of time uh, for the most part. You know, there was some reporting, uh, collection and reporting problems because we had not done this before. So uh, we had to invent new ways to go collect that data to make uh, data-driven decisions. Um, you know, I'm not sure it was uh, uh, open denial. I just think many people were, were um, uh, maybe disbelief that we, uh, United States of America, were in this position. Mm -hmm. how, could, how could that be? Uh, and I, I think it took a little bit, of, and, I, and I include myself in, to, in, in that. I haven't never uh, been through a pandemic, uh, right. of maybe a little H1N1. Uh, but when you look at the country uh, over the past hundred years, we, you know we haven't been been through this. Uh, there's not a uh, uh, there's not a playbook for something of this size. So it took a little a while to uh, I think for most people to say, wow, this is something that we've never seen, and how are we going to overcome it? And then bringing uh, all of government together, and that's I think that's an amazing story that probably doesn't get get too much airplay. But uh, it just this is just not uh, you know president or the vice president who led the, the task force or me or someone else on the task force. This is truly all of government, our partners to include business partners, uh, to come together to figure out how are we going to overcome this. Uh, and, and one of the things that uh, is, is me personally as a, as a, as a person in charge of the operational coordination, uh, from, from day one, from the president to the vice president uh, to the members was like, listen, whatever you need, ask for it. Uh, every department is at your disposal. Uh, you know, if you need to spend money, spend it. Uh, you know, we'll worry about that after the fact, but our goal is, you know, we're going to save lives, minimize uh, suffering, protect the vulnerable, all those things that, uh, that uh, we have done in the past on a much, much smaller scale, but now we're going to do it on a grand scale. We're going to do it across the country. And, and I know you and I have had discussions about this and the first, you know, the first campaign, uh, was uh, and, and the epicenter, uh, at least uh, early on in March and, and April, was was New York and New Jersey. Like mm -hmm. we we had to put it all in to make sure that that did not uh, spread to the rest of the United States. Can you imagine, um, you know, other uh, metropolitan cities across the country like New York? And if we had failed in New York, you know, we would be way behind the power curve in trying to uh, to to, uh, to gain momentum. Uh, and, and this is just not FEMA. This is, uh, this is all of government to include my state partners, uh, my local partners like Deanne, uh, and, and everyone all in with everything they have uh, to make sure that we could, we could uh, beat it back. So a little bit of, I think a little bit of, uh, again, maybe not denial, but just kind of taking a breath to say, wow, this is something that uh, has eclipsed uh, anything we have seen before. So uh, I think we're probably all a little guilty of that at every level to say, wow, uh, this is this is all new to us and how are we going to overcome this together? Oh, thank you. Dean, did you have thoughts on that? Well, it was an interesting time, right? So I think, you know, as we were going through the beginning of this, I remember 
sitting in one meeting with um, several of our leaders and the comment was brought up, eight weeks from now, you'll wish you made a decision two weeks earlier. And it was so hard to try to make decisions against something that was just beginning that we didn't really, I think, to uh, Pete's point, more of disbelief that it would actually get to a level that it actually got to, right? And how do you make these really hard decisions that are really gonna impact the daily lives of every citizen that we serve in order to protect them? And, and that was really hard in the very beginning, but you know, as we went through it, those decisions got easier because you started to see the impacts um, and the benefits of those decisions. And you know, the only thing that we really had to compare it to and the thing that we kept talking about was the 1918 flu and you know, trying to build your case modeling against some things that happened 100 years ago and how is that gonna impact um, our decisions going forward was just, a, it was a, an interesting, time to be a decision maker and the, the models that were out there while there were a lot of great models they varied completely so again i don't know if it was as much about denial but it was a it was a really big uh, a big piece of it was about which one is the right one to make your decisions against because some of them were you know you need to make this decision today to impact it for the next couple of weeks another model said you need to make you can wait a few more weeks or even a month right and they were so different so how do you take in all of that information and put the the art against the science to help you make those informed decisions but i still go back to i think that that comment about especially as you're going through something like this for the first time you're trying to make decisions that nobody's had to make before um, to have that impact. And you will always say, regardless of when you did made the action, you will always say, if I would have just done that two weeks earlier, I would have had a different impact. But with so little information, we were trying to make decisions, you know, to shut down operations when we only had about five cases, right? And so how do you make that decision when you only have a handful of cases? And then obviously quickly it spreads to something bigger. So in the beginning, decisions today and going into a wave two will be a lot simpler and a lot easier. But um, I also think maybe on the denial side and leading through denial is people do get complacent or now they're getting, you know, they're getting COVID fatigue. And how do you, how do you do the messaging for the public so they realize the impact that they're making and how much their actions actually made a difference. And, you know, there's a couple of PSAs out there right now that are really talking about the, the wearing of masks and how important that is. And it's not that wearing a mask protects me, when I wear it, when I wear it, it protects you. And so I protect you, you wear one, you protect me. And that's how we're going to help each other get through this. Hey, hey Lenny, follow up a minute. Yeah, go ahead. Just, or Rich, uh, you know, just back on the, the, the kind of the denial thing. You know, we had, uh, you know, we had a, a pandemic uh, a crisis action plan that was actually recently updated. Uh, uh, you know, the, the year before we did exercise crimson contagion, uh, you know, along the same lines, uh, you know, uh, late uh, 19 uh, into, into January. Uh, but, and, and I, may, I may have shared this with you, uh, but, but overcoming like the denial part uh, is, is kind of trying to convince somebody uh, on September 1st, uh, 2001, right? 10 days before uh, planes would uh, slam into the trade towers and the Pentagon 
in Shanksville that that was going to happen, that you were so sure that uh, terrorists were going were gonna to hijack a plane and, and drive them into uh, commercial buildings. Uh, right? I'm not sure how many people you could convince of that happening. I think to Deanne's point, you know, if, if you just knew earlier, you could have taken more action. But, you know, how sure are you 10 days, 15 days out with five cases that something uh, like we see today is going to happen? So there is, I think, just human nature is part of that. Um, and then when it happens again, uh, you have to really reassess and, and, uh, and you know, have faith in the data and, and where you're going to go. So anyway, I just wanted to follow up. Great. Thanks. And I, I have a lot of questions on the chat that uh, maybe not everybody can see, but a couple on uh, Twitter. So again, I, I'm looking at the participants here. Um, I know a lot of you folks are not shy people, so feel free to ask questions on Twitter, hashtag I am think tank, or come to the chat. I'm going to combine a couple of questions from the chat. Uh, what do you think will be the most profound long-term impact in the field of emergency management as a result of COVID? But also, how do you see, how do we can prepare differently the use of virtual uh, social distance EOCs and Macs and just operating uh, in this new Zoom world that we're in? Um, how do you see that both of those affecting is, you know, the long-term impact, but also how you see us going virtual. So, um, Deanna, Pete, want to take that first, either one? Yeah. Uh, so, Go ahead, Pete. All right. Uh, yeah, so this, uh, this pandemic uh, has changed and will change in ways we probably haven't, uh, haven't imagined yet, the, the face of emergency management. Uh, you know, if you, if you ever asked uh, me a couple of years ago, you know, would FEMA be managing a pandemic? Uh, you know, I would say, well, that's not, that's not what we do. We do national disasters. Uh, we don't do pandemics. That's somebody else, HHS uh, and, and all, those, uh, all those supporting agencies like CDC and ASPR. Uh, but guess what? It's uh, never say never in this business. It, it, it's what we do. Um, uh, we, we will become stronger uh, as a profession. Uh, we'll become wiser. Uh, we'll, we'll re One of the things I think I've embraced here, and not that we didn't do it before, but uh, the amount of data that you need to make real-time decisions uh, is critical, especially in this global pandemic, national pandemic. Uh, every single state, tribe, and territory has a need. You know, we're not managing resources. We're managing the lack of resources. And how do you make those life and death decisions? Vents, no vents. How do you make those decisions without data? But I think data will change uh, the way we do this business. Uh, it has to uh, because uh, we'll do this again as, as emergency managers, right? So uh, th th this will not, you know, a one-time deal and then go with somebody else. We're going to continue to do this. Uh, when it comes to the, the virtual world, uh, many things, many things we've learned. Uh, FEMA, I think, for the most part, uh, uh, was a, uh, and I'll use, I'll use the term telework, was a, was a telework agency to a certain degree. Uh, so we had done telework, um, you know, not, not a high percentage, but just based on, and I, I just used DC, some constraints on space. You know, we didn't have enough space for, for our, our, all of our employees at one time, so we did telework. Uh, and, and it worked, and, and you know, uh, it, it's, it was just part of, uh, you know, how we did business. But now, uh, virtually everything that we've done, barring, you know, the NRCC, the National Response Coordination Center, and a couple other sites, virtually, all virtual, right? So we're doing this by uh, telework. We're using 
uh, Zoom, we're using uh, MS uh, Teams. And you know, from my point of view, uh, we, we have uh, excelled uh, in the virtual world. Uh, when I look at uh, what we've done uh, and pick a, pick a topic like staffing and hiring, we have hired more people from January to now than we have in any previous time ever uh, virtually. Uh, we still onboard them in person, but we've hi our hiring is through the roof. Uh, productivity uh, as an agency, uh, unparalleled. We are, we are doing things that we thought we'd never do before uh, production-wise. You know, people don't have to commute to work. Uh, they don't have to pay for parking spaces. Uh, they don't have the distractions of the office. So not only FEMA and the federal government, I think businesses across the country are going to look at, you know, how do, I, how do I do business and how did I do business in COVID-19 and still be profitable? Uh, you know, do, do I need to come into a physical space uh, to run my company or my business or my agency? So we're going to learn all sorts of things about, uh, about uh, you know, doing work and, and, and speaking for FEMA for the American people. And how do we, you know, is there a better way to do it virtually? Uh, can we be more efficient? Uh, there's obviously some things that have to be hands-on, face-to-face, we get that. Uh, but I actually have a team uh, that, that's been working on it for about 30 days. You know, what, what does FEMA look like uh, once this is all over and, and all the things that we've done virtually, um, telework, you know, how do we become a better agency? So we're, we're looking at all of that. Great, thanks, Deanne. Uh, similar question. Yeah, so uh, for me on the emergency management side and what it's gonna do for emergency management, I think that, you know, you've heard me talk before, I think even in our previous session on here of, you know, really trying to help define the discipline of emergency management so people understand the unique skill set that emergency managers bring to the table. And I think the response to this global pandemic really emphasizes those points. And these things that I've talked about are in, in what makes emergency managers different is that unique ability to problem solve, right? We are always given the problem that nobody else wants to solve. Um, here was a problem that was required many people to be at the table, but again, that, that problem solving capability is, is one of those things that really sets emergency managers apart. Um, and then that brings in the critical thinking side of it being able to approach problems from a different lens, being able to think about uh, the what if scenarios, you know, adding those cascading impacts on top of what you're already dealing with and how is that going to affect your current response operations. Again, something that we saw very clearly here within the, the response to this pandemic. And then the third thing that I always talk about on what makes emergency managers different is that ability to make decisions with limited information. And again, you, you couldn't have had that any more apparent than here, where we're trying to make decisions on um, truly what was going to impact the lives of, of our constituents with very little information or differing opinions on information. And how do you bring that all together um, so you can make informed decisions to the best of your ability, but then being able to adjust those as you get more information. So again, I think from, a, from an emergency management standpoint, the one thing that the global pandemic did is really help to highlight the skill sets that emergency managers can bring and how they can really become the architects of trying to bring in everybody together. Um, a little bit more on that piece too. I mean, I think it also, from an emergency management standpoint, it really showcases that 
the work that we do, um, it goes beyond, in my opinion, the command and control that we normally see. And it's really about the coordination and communication aspect. And how do you bring in these um, complex agencies in a coordinated fashion and this kind of networked governance that goes beyond your typical ICS organization to make sure that you have the right people at the table to, to help solve the problem. I think going back to what Pete said earlier too, this was a whole of America response, right? This brought in everybody from every type of industry to help solve it. And it was not one industry that was gonna solve this on its own. And that's what emergency managers do. And that's, I think, just gonna help us excel this profession and the discipline that we serve even more. Um, on the virtual side, um, I, it's been great, right? It's, we, we as a city here in New York had not had a telework policy at all anywhere in the city. And so we were putting telework policies together on the fly um, and it worked. It worked really well. And we still are, uh, have virtual activations of our EOC right now for a heat event that we're experiencing planning for virtual activations if we have a coastal storm. But the one thing that concerns me is now all of our staff are working virtually. And if we did have a coastal storm um, that came through and we lost power and we lost cell phone towers and, um, and all of our utilities, how are we gonna operate virtually? If that happened before, we would still just bring everybody into the EOC, but I can't do that today, right? And so right now we're working through how are we gonna communicate as an agency in a virtual environment in those first days, hours or days after a storm if we don't have the resources or the technology or the infrastructure to support how we're doing it today. I don't have the answer to that yet, but we're still working through what that looks like for our city um, so we can be better prepared. Great, thanks. You answered about five questions that were in the chat on that last one. So thanks. Uh, you know, especially about has it risen the profile of emergency management in, in the general public sense? And I think the answer to that, as you said, is yes. Um, and for Pete and also everybody else, first part for Pete, second part for both Deanne and Lenny. Um, this was the first time a major disaster declaration, as you said, where FEMA had, was the lead balance with HHS uh, and the whole national medical declaration. Uh, what have we learned policy-wise, organizationally, and what changes are needed for the future uh, to be effective and successful? Um, that I'm tying in another question, where would you want to, how would you tie this together with if you could have changed things four months ago, if you could have made a couple of decisions differently. So sort of weaved in a couple of different things there, but all on the same sort of topic. So Pete, I'll start with you on the first part of that. Yep. Uh, so I, I think in, um, you know, I think when people think about uh, national preparedness, they probably think about FEMA and our grant programs. Uh, you know, we have a, a couple dozen grant programs uh, that range from, um, you know, port security to homeland security to emergency management uh, and many others, uh, about $2.1 billion a year in preparedness. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the things that I, I've generally been uh, frustrated here at is, you know, how do we equate uh, all that investment and preparedness into capability and readiness? And, and, I, and I say that uh, for award recipients and I, and I also speak on behalf of FEMA, like how do we define a ready FEMA? Uh, in, so, in some aspects we can, but in other aspects we need some work to do. Uh, when you look at uh, preparedness for a public health emergency, that uh, generally has fallen into the, uh, the responsibility of HHS and ASPR. 
uh, the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response for Public Health Emergencies. Uh, and, you know, uh, although it sounds the same a little bit, uh, you know, preparedness in the public health realm is not exactly preparedness uh, in the emergency management realm, but we, what, that we've learned because uh, they have become my partners here uh, from CDC to ASPR, uh, public health, uh, Indian Health Service, you name it. If it's under uh, HHS, work closely together. Uh, but we probably need to have a, a more holistic look about uh, preparedness efforts across the country. And uh, are they all linked together? You know, are there aspects of public health uh, preparedness grants or preparedness efforts? You know, how tightly are they linked with uh, the generic, um, uh, you know, FEMA preparedness efforts? And, and I think one of the things that, that, uh, that hopefully will probably change is regional representation. I think one of the, uh, one of the successes of our response here at FEMA is that uh, we have 10 regions around the country, uh, 10 regional administrators, all highly capable emergency managers, uh, and we own everything from American Samoa uh, all the way to uh, U.S. Virgin Islands, 9,300 miles uh, to include Hawaii and Alaska, uh, lots, of, lots of territory, but we have a footprint. We have staff. Uh, we have programs that touch all the states. And we look at uh, some of the aspects of uh, public health preparedness. Um, you know, their staffing uh, in states and their staffing at, in regions is minimal uh, compared to what FEMA has. Uh, I think we need to look at, uh, you know, how do we, again, back to readiness and capability, you know, how do we have a, a more ready nation, uh, a comprehensive ready nation, right? Just not uh, national disasters, but uh, public health emergencies and everything else that we probably haven't thought of, how does that all comprehensively fit together? Uh, we probably have some work to do on that, um, but uh, I think we recognize that we, we, that's something that we need to fix. DM, similar is to, um, you know, combination of how to turn the clock back, but uh, then also would you do a little bit different if you had the opportunity? Oh, I think that there's a lot of things that I would probably do different, and especially as we move into, you know, our planning for wave two specifically. You know, we went through, um, you know, several weeks and months of trying to figure out how we were going to expand our hospital infrastructure capability and, you know, building alternate care facilities in a variety of different locations, um, because the modeling numbers just showed these astronomical numbers I mean, that we knew that we would never actually even um, be able to meet the number of beds that these models, some of these models had showed us. But I think what we found in reality and where we plan to go for wave two is that we can support all of our hospital needs in the hospital systems themselves through some creative use of space within the hospitals. And after talking with my, my health leaders across the city, that's their preferred um, option as well, right? And because you have all of the staff there, you have all of the resources available to support within the hospital settings. Um, and if we do get to a point where it goes beyond our existing infrastructure, um, then what we'll do is we try to expand on, on the campus itself, like putting up something co-located with the hospital instead of these larger centers that were were separate. I think one of the things that we found was just really trying to understand what the resource needs were going to be to really support these 
um, non-healthcare facility alternate care sites and how you were going to staff those, how you were going to resource those. They had to be owned by a hospital. And so we're approaching that very differently as we go into this next wave of planning um, for COVID um, if we get a wave two that spikes. But I think looking at the numbers, we would have been able to support everybody within the hospital system based on our peak day of med surge patients, our peak day of ICU uh, patients, both on a ventilator or not on a ventilator, um, if we had done some creative um, maneuvering of patients within the system itself. Great, thanks. Uh, Lenny. Um, if I could just jump in uh, on the policy question, um, I'd simply say we're really fortunate in this country to have a FEMA and, um, and the whole network of emergency managers who are able to jump in in the middle of a public health emergency and assume a task for which you weren't designed to respond. I mean, FEMA's more the hurricanes and the tornadoes. Um, so the country is fortunate to have a FEMA to jump in. And I think we're likewise fortunate to have a Pete Gaynor who was uh, administrator, who was there and willing and had the imagination to, to be given the authority that you were given and then to make the most of it for the country. Uh, similarly, Deanne, um, you know, there you were uh, with this overwhelming set of problems and it took an enormous amount of um, imagination to figure out how you're going to ramp up the system in order to meet that challenge. I think from a policy question, uh, perspective going forward, we can't um, hope for uh, we've got the right people in place. We've got to have a structure and an infrastructure in place that allows the country to build out, to expand very, very quickly if we meet this uh, scale of challenge again. And I think in retrospect, we didn't have that capacity to scale up in the infrastructure of the organizations. Therefore, we were dependent on some extraordinary leaders who are able to have the imagination to figure out how do we get this big. And I think as we're going forward from a policy perspective, I think we have to build that elasticity into the system, what you're talking about, Pete, with that regionalization, um, so that we have enough people, enough capacity, enough resources, so that at that moment we can build it out without having to hope for, luckily, that we'll be able to get there. Yeah. Great, thanks. Ton of questions to get to here. Uh, so uh, for everybody, uh, thinking about uh, your own mental health and fatigue, um, and then also for your staffs, uh, COVID fatigue, compassion fatigue, how do you keep yourself and your staff motivated? And also in agencies where the majority of staff have a steady state job, how do you continue the, the great operational work while still going back to blue sky? Or do you, and how do, how do you do all that, both for yourselves initially and then for the staff, those folks that you lead? Pete? So, so uh, one of the greatest things about FEMA is that we have, uh, we have a deep bench here. Uh, many, many talented, uh, dedicated, uh, enthusiastic emergency managers uh, across the country, all the regions. And, and this is, I mean, if you're an emergency manager, and, you know, I've been an emergency manager for almost 13 years now, local and state, this is what you do. Like, this is, this is game time for emergency managers. Uh, so uh, many people look forward to, uh, not looking forward to a pandemic, but looking forward to, like, doing their profession uh, when the going gets tough. And so I, I think... Uh, uh, we, ha we have done a, a pretty good job. Uh, you know, one of the things that you have to make people do is you have to make people go home uh, and you have to make people take leave uh, and you have to make 
the like you know uh, you know the, the, the natural leaders that people go to like you know the uh, the, the A team uh, you know they're training the next they're training their replacement but at some point you have to send the A team home and let the B team and the C team uh, become the A team right give them uh, the confidence and the uh, and the trust to operate uh, you know with uh, you know with the best interests of the agency at at at, uh, uh, at the forefront if you don't let uh, un uh, inexperienced people uh, drive the car for a while you'll never get uh, to the level of the a team so you have to spread it out it is painful sometimes uh, to send uh, some of your premier responders home uh, they they don't like it because uh, they want to stay in the mix they, they'd work for 24 hours straight seven days a week if they could, but it's not good for their mental health and it's not good for the mission, but you have to do it. Uh, and so uh, there were some long, there were some long days. And I think I've uh, talked to both you and Lenny uh, at some, at, for a while, it seemed like one gigantic day. So you, you have to take time off. And as a leader, you, you need to do that. Uh, I was a little reluctant at times to, to do that. Uh, but, uh, but I, so I've taken some days off. I actually went on vacation a little bit, uh, and, and you need to do it. And so uh, in order for your, your organization to be successful, you need to set the example uh, and uh, you need to have confidence in the people that don't have a lot of experience. The only way for them to become uh, experienced emergency managers, you got to put them in the mix uh, and trust that all the things that you've done with them, training, exercises, all the investments you've made in leadership, it's going to pay off. And it does. And so uh, have, have, have confidence in your staff uh, and, uh, and, if they don't like going home, that's just too bad. Great, thanks. The end, um, for yourself and then for the team as well. Yeah, I would agree. I, you know, taking a day off is what's needed many times, but I'll tell you that it didn't happen for several months uh, for me and much of my team. And I think taking, um, taking care of myself, uh, I actually, I have a tendency to put that on the back plate, right? Because I'm always looking at my staff and trying to take care of my staff and make sure that they're taking the time they need. And we would have these conversations back and forth too with my with my close uh, my executive team. And you know, well, I'll take a day off when you take a day off. And so we had to actually sit down and mutually decide which days we were going to take off. So one, we would take care of ourselves, but two, we would set the example for everybody else. And the other thing that I think really works for me is I, I am fortunate that I have an office right on a park and just going out for a little bit in the day and taking a walk around the park or a walk to get a cup of coffee, just that even a short mental break makes a huge difference in the midst of um, a chaotic environment. I mean, we activated on February 1st and uh, so we've been activated since then. And that was coming off of um, an activation that was supporting both a response to Puerto Rico, helping them with their their earthquake, as well as uh, two ongoing responses that we had here in the city. And so the team was pretty worn out even when this first started. So for the team itself, you know, things that we did here to help is um, we brought in one, we brought in a mental health specialist that was doing both virtual and in-person meetings that you could set up time just to talk. Um, and he's gotten quite a bit of response. In fact, we still get new visits to him every day of people that hadn't gone to him before. And I think what we see is, as you go through the beginning of a crisis like this, 
uh, adrenaline gets you through. But as you get to the tail end of a crisis like this, you start to think about everything that you went through and, and everything that's happened. And it can be overwhelming at times. And so we've put mechanisms in place to make sure that we have those resources available. Um, but our planning team here was really great too. And when they'd send out their daily planning notes, they would um, always add inspirational quotes and inspirational pictures and they would ask people to, to send in different pictures. And so it got people engaged in activities that were outside of our COVID related response. And then we would have scheduled things like um, we would have, um, they would schedule virtual um, meditation sessions that you could log into or uh, different webinars where you could get different advice. So different things throughout the day that and through the weeks that people could go to to just try to get a break and, and help learn how to take care of themselves as well. Uh, where we're at right now is really encouraging everybody to take time off. In fact, I think uh, half of my senior staff is on vacation this week, which is great as we get ready for what we think is gonna be a busy fall. And that's a really important piece right now is when you have the time, if you don't have to stay late and go home early, and if you can take some time off, take the time off when, it, when it's presented to you because you just never know when it's gonna happen again. Great. Thanks, Pete. I know you have to run. You have somebody else you have to go to. I suppose he can take precedence. But uh, the one last question for you, um, you know, where do you see FEMA going after all of this? Uh, there's a lot of questions I can't get to for, uh, for you, but we'll continue the conversation. But Pete, last word on um, where do you see FEMA going in emergency management in the long run? In any yeah, again, I think, uh, you know, based on what we've been through and, and what we're going to continue to go through, you know, I, I think our mission uh, will get a little bit wider. Uh, I think we'll probably have more responsibilities. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm not talking about anything official, just kind of my gut. Uh, you know, it will, we'll do an after action report about uh, what went well, uh, what the challenges were, what we can do better. Uh, all, all that will come out. Uh, you know, we're, so we're still engaged uh, with the, uh, with, uh, COVID-19 response, uh, and we, we need to get ready for hurricane season. That, that really is uh, on the top of my mind uh, today. Um, I, you know, I, I think all in all, when it's summed up and you look back uh, in, in 12 months and 24 months, uh, we will be a stronger FEMA, uh, we'll be a smarter FEMA, and I think emergency managers across the country uh, will follow right along, smarter, uh, data-driven, um, uh, probably uh, more ready, more realistic ready, uh, I think we need to do a better job in defining that. Uh, and the money that we spent on readiness, I think we're going to need to actually measure that. And I know that's been, uh, that's been a uh, source of contention. But when you think about every single state declared emergency, a uh, lack of resources, uh, and this, this uh, system that we have locally executed, state managed, fully supported, that means it's just not the federal government. That means it's everyone. Uh, and, and again, this historic response has highlighted some of the things we need to do better. Uh, uh, and so uh, we'll, we'll see what's written at the end of this. But I want to thank everyone. Uh, sorry to step out early. I have a governor's uh, BTC to go uh, with, uh, to meet with uh, the coronavirus task force. Uh, and again, Rich, I look forward to doing another one here in the near future. Thanks, everybody. Okay, great. Thanks, okay. Pete. Good to see you. Thank you. Thanks, Lenny. Thanks, Ian. Good to see you. See you. And we have a, a ton of questions at the end. Uh, Lenny, if you're willing to go for the next half hour or so. Rich, sure. just oh, one, one thing on this, on the last point, yeah. just I think everybody's got to remember in terms of mental health, um, this experience that we're going through right now is going to be with us for the rest of our lives. 
And uh, so we'll spend a lot of time looking back on what we've done. There's some things about which we'll be proud and there's some things that we'll lament. So just be aware that it's not simply that you're dealing with your mental health today. It, you're dealing with your mental health for the long term uh, in terms of what you will bring out of this and to be prepared and to focus on that for some time as well right now. Okay, great. And um, a few more questions. Uh, Deanne, a very specific question for you. Uh, regarding telework in context with continuity operations, have you considered doing anything with the state of New York um, in alternate locations? And I know you can't give out alternate locations, but it may already be in the plans, but that's a, a question that came in. And I have a, a bunch more questions as well for both of you. I think as it relates to continuity of operations in this environment that we're in right now, it's less, it's going to be less focused on alternate locations as it is going to be on how we're going to communicate. Uh, so we're in this virtual environment and activating our continuity of operations plan for COVID-19 where a lot of the, t a lot, I think personally, a lot of the time we spend on continuity plans is really focused on that backup facility, but this event showed us that it's focused on the people and the loss of people. And so as we move into the next phase of this, as we continue to have widespread telework policies going on until there's a vaccine, it's how are we gonna be able to operate still in this virtual environment while we're still, um, teleworking and, and we have those power outages that I mentioned before. So I think right now it's critical for everybody to take a, a hard look at your continuity plans and look at that piece of it. How are you gonna continue to work in a virtual environment if you don't have the infrastructure to support it? Do you have to find people that are gonna come in really taking a look at your essential workforce now, right? Because you have limited space to put people in your workplace and those are the people that you're gonna to need to bring in versus those that you're gonna to have to just wait until the infrastructure is restored and you can start working together again. That's the question that's been really grappling with me lately and, and how we're gonna work through that as we go into the peak of coastal, coastal storm season. And, and tying along that, one of the other questions, and, and Lenny, I'm interested in your comments as well. Um, but somebody from the private sector uh, in energy, that's going to have to be energy, but they're challenged to balance the need to continue to provide their commodity uh, in support of the community around us. But could you maybe speak to the lessons, especially examples of best practices or cautions or pitfalls for the private sector partners as they work with a coordinated effort with the public sector? Uh, public, you know, uh, counterparts and how can they lead, you know, across and beyond. Um, so just sort of how combination of, you know, this one was energy, but how can they bring together to follow up more or less what you're just saying more that was with the state partner, but how do you do this with the private sector as well, especially in this crisis? You know, I, I was on the phone this morning with somebody in the private sector and, and one of the topics of conversation is that these are really, really tough times. I mean, they just, you can't, you cannot balance a budget when you've got such expenses and just keeping your operation floating with much decreased revenues. So it's a real tough time for everybody in business, just keeping yourself alive through this. It's an existential threat. And one of the topics of that conversation was, just to go back to what I said earlier about mental health, your customers are gonna remember forever how you treated them right now. And if, if you maintained your values, if you maintained your civic responsibilities, if you were there for your community, they will remember this down the road. 
Um, and I think it's important for businesses to recognize that at this very, very critical juncture, they're creating their reputation for the long term. So while it's really tough, I think every private sector is having some, to make some decisions that were hard to imagine uh, just a few months ago. Uh, you're making decisions now that have long-term implications. Yeah. Dan, I know one of your you know, issues is you have a few private sector folks in New York City to deal with. Yeah, I think as it relates to like integration with the government itself, I, one, I would say that you do have to, again, take a hard look at what your essential functions are and what is going to be needed to not just get through, you know, the next several months, but this longer term um, impact, especially as we're facing um, concurrent events that might happen. Um, and so, you know, we have a really strong public-private partnership section here within New York City Emergency Management, and they do extensive outreach with our private sector partners all of the time. And they've been doing it throughout this entire entire event, right, and helping give them guidance um, from the very early days before decisions were being made. We're providing guidance to them on things that they should be thinking about, things that they should include in their continuity plans. You know, some businesses obviously are far more mature than others, but as we now go through this piece where we're going into the recovery phase, we've, you know, as we've transitioned from our really focus on response into recovery, the private sector piece of it is a huge component for us. And how are we helping them help themselves, helping the community help um, the private sector partners, especially our small business partners to get back up and running. I think one of the things that I think about and I worry about is again, if we have a coastal storm and there's certain private sector partners that, um, or even nonprofit partners that we've relied on or we rely on you know, to help support the relief efforts after, after a major disaster, are they gonna be able to provide those same resources that we're used to having them provide? Or are they now in a position where they don't have the resources available anymore? Are those partners that we have used so, um, so prominently in the past, are they going to be able to support us in the same way? And those are things and those are conversations that we're having right now is trying to figure out what our platform looks like, what our baseline for support is going to be if, if we get to the point where we're having to provide relief um, support and move into recovery from another event. Great. And uh, just a, a follow up, you had mentioned, um, actually you spoke to NBI class a few weeks ago. And you had mentioned the importance of partnerships and relationships and some unexpected ones. What were some of the unexpected partnerships or groups of people that you never expected that you would be working with that, that came out all of a sudden? Oh, Rich, maybe you'll have to remind me on which one I said then. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it's again, emergency management is all about partnerships, right? And and we've had to, to build partnerships um, uh, across many different spectrums as we've gone through this, um, this COVID response. I mean, the city itself um, is really interesting, right? It's so, it's so resource rich. And so for, for a lot of things, the city is able to respond and each individual agency and department is able to respond on their own and they can really function well in their own silo for a period of time. But as things get bigger and more complicated, this is where we found that we really had to start to engage much more collectively in areas that we didn't necessarily think that we were going to have to engage with before and, and put in programs that were going to be able to support or reach out to staff members and have them do things that they hadn't done in the past. I mean, so 
You know, one really great example of a partnership is uh, the, the food access program that we have put together where, you know, we reached a point where we delivered uh, over 1 million meals in a single day to vulnerable New Yorkers. And we did that through a combination of things. And that was through grab and, grow, grab and go sites at our Department of Education sites that, you know, when, when schools shut down, a lot of the schools are the primary source for lunches for school children. So we created these grab and go sites for families there. Then we created food distribution sites where we partnered with the taxi and limousine service to deliver meals to vulnerable New Yorkers, New Yorkers that weren't vulnerable before, but now have been laid off and, and couldn't afford to feed their families. And then we ha uh, supported just the general distribution and enhanced the distribution of our food program to our seniors. And so with all of that, I think today we've delivered over 55 million meals across New York City and we're still delivering meals every day. Not a million a day anymore, but that was our target and we did get there. And it really took um, a, the whole of city, private, public, nonprofit to come together and make that happen and really help people in a time of need. Right. And that was it, by the way. Uh, <laughs> so food and air conditions. Uh, air conditions. <laughs> things that you never thought that you'd be doing in the, in the way that you're doing, doing them. Um, as we start to, to look at some of the other questions that are coming in, um, we're just doing too many screens here. Uh, the, what, what, is there a way to quote unquote, uh, categorize, categorize a pandemic event in the response as a success or a failure or can you even? That was what some of the questions, one of the questions on Twitter and Lenny for you as well. How would you, can you categorize this response to a pandemic as a success or a failure? I would say success and failure is like risk. Uh, there's some things that are more risky. There's some things that are less risky. It's very hard uh, to say something is absolutely risky or absolutely non-risky. Likewise, um, it, it's very difficult to say that something was a total success or a total failure. I think afterwards, and uh, we'll be able to assess in retrospect what, what we did. And then the question will be, well, what's your metric? If your metric is the economy, then that's one success metric. If your metric is how many cases there were per 100,000 in the population, how many deaths there were, how well was the emergency management system able to respond? I think when we're done, uh, we'll develop a, a number of metrics. I think right now, uh, the one that I think about every morning when I wake up is how many, how many lives can we save? And you know, I think certainly that, um, Deanne, uh, the work that you and your colleagues did in New York there are people that are alive today because of what you've done. Um, similarly, what, what Pete did, um, there are people alive today because of what Pete and his colleagues were able to do. And I think that's the most important metric. And as we're going forward, um, trying to encourage people to wear masks, to social distance, um, the extent that we can be successful at that is going to be a key factor in how successful we are in this overall pandemic. So. That's a really important point, Lenny. I, I, you know, it's the successes are not going to be necessarily things that we can measure tangibly, I think, right? And so we've talked a lot about how we de-densified some congregate populations where we took supportive housing and early releases from the criminal justice system and we put them in hotels. Um, and 
how do you how do you quantify how many lives that saved because you don't know right um but it was a success and everybody claims it as a success and so i think that you're going to see um it's going to be harder to quantify the successes of this response than it is going to be to quantify the failures of this response everybody's going to be able to point to a, a specific number that we could have improved upon absolutely but there are going to be so many success stories out there that you can't put a hard fact to that were truly a success. And I think those are the ones that are going to be really important to capture. Um, and history is going to be the determining factor on, you know, whether people view this as a success or a failure. And it's going to be a combination of both. No, Pete, Pete, you're right. Pete's not with us right now. So I can recall a conversation I had with him a few days ago. You know, we talked about the fact that, uh, and you certainly saw this, Deanna, in New York City. No healthcare provider went to the shelf to get a ventilator and found that it was empty. Uh, that's extraordinary. Uh, that was a success. Um, and I was talking with Pete Gaynor about it uh, recently. And he said, you know, yes, it was. But in the middle of this pandemic, we can't take a victory lap. Uh, so uh, so I, I think we still are uh, having to focus on how to do it and how to do it better because mm -hmm can't take a victory lap when so many people are dying across the country. Absolutely. And um, another question is, and we, we touched on this earlier from an organizational point of view for emergency management, but specifically, what is the role is, uh, of emergency management leader? How has that altered in the pandemic, both now and going forward, not just emergency management, but what does the emergency management leader have to think about doing differently that at the beginning of this year, we didn't talk about from a leader's point of view? That's a, it's an interesting question. And I, I think from my perspective, um, as an emergency management leader here is, for me, it was a lot of times um, understanding the desires from the policy level and being able to communicate that in an actionable way to the operational level. Uh, that happened multiple times during the day because again, as we talked about in the beginning, there were so many unknowns and hard to make decisions and conversations after conversation about, you know, which direction should we go? But you have your whole team just waiting for some direction, right? And, and some task to be given because that's what we're used to doing. And we just didn't really have that in the beginning. And so it, it's keeping things moving along in a way that um, is keeping up with the demands of the crisis, but as well as the ever-changing opinions that the different models were bringing in, the different um, studies were bringing in, and then how we were going to actually approach those. So I think that's part of it from an emergency management leader's perspective. But I think, again, and I'll just go back to the role of the emergency manager is to lead the coordination, that coordination and communication across all agencies in this really complex networked governance relationship that happens here. And that's the role of an emergency management leader is to lead that communication, make sure that the right people are talking to each other, that the right information is being given, that we're looking at the right data or looking at it in, in a way that helps drive a decision. And because everybody's going to look at things from their own lens. Um, and everybody, I talked to one of my health people the other day uh, from, from hospitals, right? 
everybody has a day-to-day -day job. My health leaders, like the whoever represents emergency management in my hospitals, they have a day-to-day -day job to run their hospitals. But my day-to-day -day job as an emergency management leader is to make sure that I'm bringing all of the right people together and helping them connect with each other. That's what my job is. They shouldn't have to go out and try to find who they're supposed to talk to. They should be able to come to me and help solve that problem, help make that connection, help drive the decision and the action forward. My answer would be, as a student of emergency managers, that emergency managers generally have parameters. Like, this is what FEMA does, but FEMA doesn't do that. Uh, but now FEMA does do pandemics. Um, usually a crisis has parameters of, of space. It's happening in this particular place. COVID-19 happened everywhere. Usually it affects a certain group of people. COVID-19 affected everybody. And usually, whether it's a hurricane or a flood or a tornado, um, it, there's a time frame. Uh, this has a sensation of being timeless. And so, you know, one of the differences for people that are doing emergency management now is to be, you, you're now in the realm of working without those parameters, which is going to, going back to the conversation before, is going to change emergency management forever. Great, thanks. And uh, another question in following up is, um, planning in ambiguous situations is, is not easy to say the least. How does the team maintain the right mindset to both plan, but to be flexible all at once. So how can you plan in this situation where it was very ambiguous, less so now, but still ambiguous where we're going, but how, and at the same time, be flexible? Is there Lenny or Deanne want to take a shot at that first? Yeah. You know, let me start on that one, Lenny. That's a, it's a tough one, Rich. I, I mean, that was a, it was a tough situation. You know, it's, it's, having we were you know having a plan for decisions on when to start social distancing when we had our first case right how do you plan when you don't really know what's going to happen next what i found so unique about this entire operation was you know it's not like responding to uh, the impacts of a natural disaster where you're planning because you can see the damage we were watching the damage happen and trying to figure out how we were going to mitigate that damage. And it was, it was an interesting um, place to be of, of really trying to put plans and procedures in place to, um, to stay ahead of it. Uh, and we didn't always stay ahead of it. Um, but I think the one thing we're, so it was a lot of crisis action planning and just in time planning as we were going through this. Where planning really came in though, I think for us is um, the cascading impacts team that we put together very early on. So as we were building the operation around our response to COVID-19, we were already looking at our existing plans and how we were gonna have to adapt them in this new environment because we didn't know how long this would last. And so from a planning perspective, that was a really critical piece um, for, for a planner to look at, right, is how are you gonna adapt? How are you gonna adjust? What things are you gonna have to put in place? And from a readiness perspective, what I would add to that then is you need to, to physically test that. And, and I've been asking the team lately to do a lot of rehearsal of concept or rock drills because we're putting things on paper that adapt our current plans based on this COVID reality. But then when we go out and try to do it in reality, it's not looking quite 
the same, right? So let's just talk about evacuation shelters. You know, we've put it on paper of what they're going to look like. We're going to go now test it and see how far apart we put these and does it make sense and are they going to stay and are we going to have to adapt? Uh, we found that with our cooling centers that we just opened up as well. We put something down on paper, but then when we go to uh, execute it, it's a little bit of a different environment. And so we've adapted plans to still something that we've never done before. And so these rehearsal of concept drills will really help enhance our readiness to make sure that we do have the right pieces in place. And they'll still need to be adjusted uh, if we have to execute them. Great. Well, I think um, you know, one of the things we talk about um, in our curriculum on meta leadership is the knowns and the unknowns. And they're the known knowns. I know I know that, and I, that's actionable information. Um, there are things that are known unknowns. And Deanne, in, in your case, um, uh, you knew that Italy had a lot of experience that preceded your experience in New York City. In many ways, mm -hmm. um, it was a known unknown that you didn't know what it was like to cope with an it Italy type experience, but you could call them up and you could get you know, that information. And then there were unknown, uh, uh, there, there were no the unknown knowns. So you didn't even know what you didn't know uh, when, it, you know, when it comes you know, to the number of dead that you had in, in the community and also the number of people that were dying in their homes. And then how do you get out of that ambiguous situation by being very proactive and then um, going after that information? And then there are the unknown unknowns. And certainly because New York, you and New York were at the cusp of this crisis you are having to cope with a whole set of contingencies that now other people can call you up and say, well, what did you do when X happened? Uh, but you were in a whole series of unknowns, unknowns. You didn't know what was gonna happen next. And I think it's important for emergency managers to understand what do I know and what don't I know? And if there's something that I don't know, to be really proactive about finding where I can get that information. And in the case of COVID-19, because there were people that were ahead of us, by just reaching out to those people that already experienced uh, what we're experiencing right now, you can in some ways reduce that ambiguity. So people from Miami, people from Houston could be calling you up and saying, you know, we're now experiencing what you experienced. You know a lot, help us understand that as well. Right, and I'm gonna, it's the next question, but I'm actually gonna answer it. Uh, <laughs> It is, uh, should Congress include a significant expansion of the National Service AmeriCorps, and I'm going to add FEMA Corps in the next stimulus funding, where, where could AmeriCorps members aid state local capacity for recovery service to assist in public health, education, disadvantaged youth, senior services, food distribution, especially the long-term recovery work? So the answer, the answer is yes, and I think it's an opportunity for young people, and I know a lot of young folks, both from Harvard and MIT and just people who are friendly with, that their kids are not got, are taking a year off for college or college isn't even starting to January. So in a way for people to take and do a year of service in the country, I think is gonna be absolutely essential. And it's a good opportunity. And I know uh, I'm partial to FEMA Corps. I know Deanne is very partial to FEMA Corps because she carried the banner. Yes, too. And Lenny is too. Uh, so uh, I, I just had to comment on that question, so. But, I'm always happy when you can squeeze in a FEMA Corps plug, Rich. Hey, no, I have to, you know. Uh, and I think it's uh, not just FEMA Corps, I think it's an opportunity now more than ever for people to do a year of service. Uh, yes. It also helps uh, diversify our organizations as well. So I, I should be expanded, not just FEMA Corps, but quite a bit. 
Dan, you, you've had the opportunity um, to go through the, the really tough parts of uh, COVID response in New York City. Uh, and now the Sun Belt's going through that as well. well. What advice would you give to local emergency managers that are going through this now? The first thing that I would say is uh, that there's already a lot of lessons learned uh, from not just New York City, but you know, the West Coast, uh, across the nation, other countries. There are so many lessons learned already and you don't have to go through this for the first time. Uh, please reach out. I'd be more than happy to share any of the information uh, that we have put together, any of the experiences that we have had. Um, to, to help you make decisions or to see if it was something, if it's something that you're going through and you just have a question about. Uh, there's so much information out there already. Um, I would also say too, is it's time to take a look at your existing plans, right? As I talked about cascading impacts. And I think that it's important to look at how you're gonna execute your existing plans if you have a concurrent event at the same time you're going through, um, not even just the surge, I mean, for the, until we have a vaccine, we're going to have impacts on how we respond to the the, um, the disasters that we see on a more regular basis. And then I would also say, you, since we're all working virtually, again, this has been something that's been on my mind lately. Since we're all work, work, working virtually, you need to take a look at your continuity plans right now and see how you're going to be able to continue to work virtually if you have a service interruption, if we have power outages and cell outages. What does that look like for you? Um, you know, we had our first conversation about it here a couple of days ago, and you know, it's hard. This is another one where it's hard for people to get their head wrapped around um, what that means, right? And well, we'll just you know use MyFi's. No, that's MyFi's aren't going to work. How are you going to? You can't bring everybody in. How are you going to be able to do that if you if you find yourself in that situation? Um, but from the COVID side itself, uh, again, I. Honestly, I think the best thing that you can do is reach out um, if there's something that you're facing that um, is new and you have questions. There are lots of other jurisdictions across the country right now that have faced that and see what they've done. Uh, call me up. I'll be happy to talk through what we've done um, and, and see if it would help you. Great. Now, do, do you know of any place other than having to call you that, that there are some little lessons learned? I, I just don't know of any wonder if you do. Yeah, I don't know either, actually. Um, I know that, you know, New York City is part of big city emergency managers, and we've been sharing information um, amongst ourselves, and we've had weekly calls to talk about the things that we've been doing. Um, so uh, if there's another uh, virtual environment that gets stood up where we can share some information, I think that would be a great idea. Okay, great. Seems like maybe our next thing. Uh, but that's a, a great idea. Well, Lenny, uh, and Deanne both, thank you very much. I uh, appreciate you taking the time in a very busy situation that's going on. Um, I know you're in a heat emergency in New York as, as well as on top of everything else that's going on. Um, so thank you for taking the time. Any last comments uh, before we go? Uh, first, Rich, I wanna thank you um, for bringing us together and Deanne, um, thank you for sharing your leadership lessons and Pete's not with us right now. Um, uh, thank Pete also for sharing his leadership lessons. As a student of Extraordinary Leaders, it's a real honor and privilege for me uh, uh, to learn from you and, and to, to gather your lessons. And simply to say to, the, to people um, uh, with us today, um, if, if you're interested, we have a lot of resources on the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative 
website. There are videos um, that you can watch. And, and if you're interested, um, we're offering online uh, classes. Uh, so this is your opportunity to come at a fraction of the cost, at the, of the cost to come and join us at Harvard uh, and to partake in courses on crisis preparedness at Harvard. And of course, um, our book, um, You're It, Crisis, Change, and How to Lead When It Matters Most, uh, another tool for you as you're trying to build up your crisis leadership capabilities. Rich? Great, thank you. And Deanne? I'd just like to say that, you know, these are truly unprecedented times and we've experienced something that I hope no other emergency manager has to experience again. But we've learned a lot. We've all come together. I think it truly has helped define what emergency management is and how important the role of an emergency manager is for a jurisdiction. And so I hope that really helps to, again, drive our profession um, to an even higher level than it is today. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you for taking the time. And thank you uh, for the hundreds of people that joined us today. Um, and it was great to, to, I wish I could have seen a lot of you, but it was great to hear a lot of the questions uh, and, get, uh, and get a lot of the good information out. So again, thank you, Pete, even though he's not here, but thank you. Uh, thanks, uh, Deanne, very much appreciated. And thank you, Lenny, as well. It was a great call. Uh, time flew by. I think we got to most questions. I know we didn't get to all, but we got to a lot. Again, thank you very much. Until next time. Thanks, Rich. Thanks. Thanks.